primary care knowledge boost, dealing with uncertainty. Welcome to this episode of Primary Care Knowledge Boost with Dr. Avril Danshak about dealing with uncertainty. She's literally written the book on this subject alongside Dr. Alison Lee, so we're thrilled to be able to talk to her about it today. Yeah, she covers the type of uncertainty that she describes as what to do when you don't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's a more structured approach than we were expecting, which is really helpful and it really struck a chord with me about the subject. Yes, I nearly feel like the topic and the conversation with her should be prerequisite learning for everyone going into clinical practice. Yeah, completely agree. Um, And we hope you enjoy it too. So can you introduce yourself and give us a bit of background on why you got into the area of dealing with uncertainty? Yeah, my name's Avril Danchak. I'm a GP and I'm a primary care medical educator in the Northwest, which means I do the training for people who are planning to be GPs. And I also do some training work with their trainers. And with my colleague, Alison Lee, we got very interested in not so much uncertainty, but we started off uh, being interested in the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Because mm-hmm. in primary care, not knowing what to do is a very common occurrence. And even when you don't know what to do, you kind of have to know what to do, even when you don't know what to do. So we started off um, asking people and we did some research in focus groups with ST3s. And we said to them, well, you know, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What happens? And we learned some very interesting things from that. And as a result, we got very interested in trying to help people cope with the what we call the what do you do when you don't know what to do moment, which is, Hmm. you know, uh, happens throughout professional life. And as a result of that, we wrote a book called um, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What to Do, which kind of tells you what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I got interested in it, really. Brilliant. So we're both really excited to cover this topic. You mentioned a bit there already, but can you explain a little bit more about why it's important to be talking about dealing with uncertainty in primary care? Well, I think every doctor, but particularly in primary care, every doctor knows that medicine is very uncertain. And actually, weirdly, you know, every specialty thinks theirs is the most uncertain specialty. And there's been quite a lot of research on this. And if you speak to surgeons or histopathologists or GPs, they all say we have to handle an awful lot of uncertainty. And that's because everything in medicine is uncertain. We don't know much about our patients. We don't know really much about the body. We don't know really much about our treatments. Um, And so there's an intrinsic uncertainty. But I think most of us can accept that. We know that if we give somebody antibiotics, we know that we can't know for certain whether it's going to kill them. The, the kind of uncertainty that medics and other clinical workers, uh, it's not confined to medics at all, but clinicians struggle with the kind of uncertainty which is slightly different, which is, well, I'm in this situation and actually I don't know what to do. So it's that what you do when you don't know what to do moment, which is what we really focus on rather than the intrinsic uncertainty of knowing, you know, what percentage of people are going to respond to such a treatment or, you know, how likely is uh, a pain in the knee to be osteoarthritis. It's That's a slightly different kind of uncertainty, if you like. And we concentrate yeah. on that personal experience that people are having. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I guess that leads nicely into asking you, how do we deal with things when we don't know what to do? <laughs> what's, what's your normal approach? I think there are kind of three components to this. First of all, we have to understand how uncertainty affects us. 
um, because it affects the way we behave in, in a number of ways, then what Alison and I came up with was that actually medics and clinicians like classifying things and having lists. And you can classify uncertainty into different kinds of uncertainty. Not all uncertainties are the same. And what we also like to teach is that when you've got a bit of an idea of what kind of uncertainty you're dealing with, there's nearly always a set of skills that you can use to unpick this. And this is the core of what being a generalist is all about. Mm. Being a generalist, you have to know stuff and you have to know probably about half of what every specialty knows. But the most important thing about a generalist is not what you know, but it's what you know how to do. It's your know-how. And uncertainty is nearly always unlocked. The uncertain situation is moved forwards by applying some certain skills. And we can talk about how different kinds of uncertainty need different skills. Yeah, definitely. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it might be worth just thinking a little bit about about why we're talking about uncertainty and why you are so keen on uncertainty. So I might ask you a question and say, well, what's it, what's it like when you're in that I don't know what to do moment? How do you feel? Panicked. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? I just I, I don't like it. I don't like not knowing what to do. I need I need to know the answers to everything. So I really struggle when I don't know what to do. I think for me, it's a bit of a mixture of kind of like I should know and that there is an answer and that feeling that why can't I find it? So it's a bit kind of a, a personal, you know, that, that it's my fault that I can't find it. Or I, I mean, there's ways that I've kind of tried to tackle that, but it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And it's often, yeah, it's suddenly try it's putting pressure on your brain to suddenly click into an answer. And yeah. then all those neurons are firing and kind of, yeah. you know, and the yeah, panic sets in and that does not help. <laughs> So, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think you're describing very common experiences that people have. And and what often happens is that people begin by thinking, well, I I don't know what to do. That feels a bit uncomfortable because I ought to know what to do because I'm supposed to know what to do. And um, so I've got to cast around desperately. But actually, because I'm in a panic now, I can't think straight Mm. uh, because I'm in such a panic. I ought to know what to do. But my panicking is making it even worse. So I, even less do I know what to do. And that's terrible because I yeah. really ought to know what to do. And then they think, well, if I don't know what to do, that's because I'm a bit useless and that's terrible. And I feel quite ashamed of that because I'm sure everybody else knows what to do, especially my trainer, my colleagues, my boss. They all know what to do. It's just me that feels this terrible. And gosh, if I don't know what to do, that probably means I'm going to make a mistake. I'm probably going to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I can feel you nodding here. So <laughs> and what will happen if I get it wrong? Well, if I get it wrong, something will go wrong with the patient. And then when it goes wrong with the patient – they'll be harmed and that would be terrible. That would be even more shaming and embarrassing and terrible that I've harmed a patient. And also if I harm a patient, what will happen then? Well, they'll probably sue me or or else they'll refer me to the GMC and, oh my God, I'm going to get struck off. (laughs) I think you're laughing, but I think, isn't that a kind of sequence of of thinking? It's literally exactly how I felt. A hundred percent, (laughs) yeah. It's funny because it's true, yeah. And um, I've come to call this the sort of catastrophe cascade. We start off thinking, well, I'm just not quite sure what to do. But it feels very threatening because we think it's going to end up in some sort of disaster. And this mixing up of uncertainty with error is, is a very basic thing, which you have to tease out right at the beginning. Being uncertain is not the same as being wrong. Okay. Okay. Now, 
to some extent, being a bit uncertain can help to protect you from being wrong. Because as every trainer will tell you, the people who complain about you, nearly always, it's the ones where you thought it went okay. You thought you were doing fine. Uh, and you didn't realise that you'd slipped off onto the wrong path and, and missed something. And the ones where you really work hard and you, and you think carefully and you think, I'm not quite sure, you're much less likely to get it wrong then because you're thinking carefully and you're just aware of the scope of what's going on. Mm. So being a little bit uncertain is actually a good thing. It's it's a helpful thing because it tells you you're in that point of equipoise where there's perhaps different options and different possibilities. So I'm, I'm just going to define uncertainty a little bit because it might pick up that. Yeah. Uncertainty can be an ambiguity. So that means something that's inexact or that maybe has got a double meaning or maybe something unpredictable. But sometimes it means that we're aware that we haven't got all the required information or that we haven't got the right knowledge or we're not quite sure which skill to use. And one guy called Han defines uncertainty as a subjective perception of ignorance. I think it's very important to have this subjective component in there because quite often as a trainer, you find that the trainees who are the most uncertain are the ones who know the most and are the most skilled. The ones who are very confident, sometimes they simply don't know what they don't know. And so they're confident enough to not realize that they should be feeling uncertain. So so embrace your uncertainty. It's a good thing. Uh, and it, it's okay to, to have that feeling of uncertainty. The, the question is, what are you going to do with it, really? Yeah. And how are you going to manage it? Now, when we recognize uncertainty, we get a little sort of... Um, free sound, don't we? We get a little kind of, oh, I don't know what's going on here. I'm not quite sure. A sort of alarm bell. Yeah. That's called a metacognition. It means you're thinking about your thinking. So you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do. And then another bit of your brain is going, aha, you're a bit stuck here. You don't know what to do. And that um, metacognition, that thinking about thinking is a really important thing to take note of. And you must pay attention to that uncertainty because what tends to happen um, is this, we think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'm uncertain, that's going to make me feel terrible, and I'm going to be embarrassed or something. So um, what I'm going to do is do something, because then I've made a decision, and I won't be uncertain then. Mm-hmm. And many hundreds of years ago, somebody called Maimonides said, the risk of a wrong decision is preferable to the terror of indecision. <laughs> I resonate with that. (laughs) You're recognising that as well. And I think because the feelings of indecision and uncertainty um, are very uncomfortable, we want to resolve the uncertainty quickly. And what we quite often do is choose what me and Alison call a dysfunctional way out. So we choose a, a way out that gets us out of feeling uncertain, but it isn't necessarily the best way out. So, for example... If you say something like, if I do this, it'll get the patient out of the room. Or if I do this, I won't have to make a decision today. Or if I do this, I can just pass the buck to somebody else. Then that's a dysfunctional way out. It's a way out that that makes you feel a bit better, but it isn't really going to help in the long run. Mm -hmm. And we kind of know that because when we get the patient out of the room... Don't go on it. They come back the next week, don't they? <laughs> or or we um, refer somebody and then they come back because that person hasn't solved the problem either. Yeah. Mm. So what we have to think about is functional ways through. That is a better way of working through our uncertainties. And you'll know it's functional if you're thinking about it 
you're anticipating the consequences, uh, you're using the right skills, you kind of know what you don't know. Uh What we have found is that if we classify uncertainty, it helps us to do two things. It, It spotlights the dysfunctional ways out of those particular types of uncertainty. So those are things to avoid. But also it helps to identify the specific skills that do help in that. Both of the functional ways through uncertainty and out to the other side. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. So the question is, how do you classify uncertainty? And I should say at the beginning that what I'm going to talk about now is not something you do during a consultation. It's not a real time thing. This is a method of reflecting on an uncertainty afterwards to help you kind of identify what's been going on because uh-huh. it needs a little bit of thinking about and not many people will do this in real time. So if we start by just thinking about what happens in a consultation when you've got one clinician and one patient, yeah. if you don't know the diagnosis, then we call that an analysing problem. So sometimes when we talk to patients, we're really just not quite sure how to define the problem. We call that an analysing uncertainty. But sometimes we know what the diagnosis is. And even though it's only us us two in the room, we're not quite sure what the management ought to be. Mm-hmm. Let's say um, we've got somebody who's got COPD. We know the diagnosis. Um, they've got over a recent exacerbation. Um, and you know they're a a 60-a-day smoker, you really want them to give up smoking. And you see them with another exacerbation six weeks later, they're still smoking. Then you see them with another exacerbation, they're still smoking. Then they have a heart attack and they're still smoking. And you think stopping smoking would really be good for you. But the patient doesn't want to or can't manage it. So we call that a negotiating uncertainty. So do those two basic kinds make some kind of sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So let's go back to the situation where you don't know the diagnosis, but actually start to think, uh, I'm going to need some help making this diagnosis. So I'm going to need to do some blood tests or an x-ray or maybe refer somebody. And so you can get uncertainties when you've got a group team or network involved as well. So if somebody's, let's say, got a little bit of abdominal pain and some tingling in their left arm and their vision's gone a bit blurry and uh, they're also diabetic, you might find yourself thinking, which blood tests are the most appropriate? Yeah. Or if I'm going to refer them, do I refer them to the diabetic team or the neurologist or mm. or what? Yeah. Or maybe I should refer them to the, the gastroenterologist because they've got abdominal pain. So actually getting help from your diagnostic network needs skills of itself, knowing how to get a referral that really works, knowing how to use blood tests properly. Mm. There are skills in that. Finally, sometimes we have a sort of negotiating dilemma where we all know what the diagnosis is and we all know what the treatment plan is, but you need a whole team to be part of that treatment plan. Mm. And sometimes you get problems there. So trying to get somebody to have some insulin when they can't give it themselves, but the district nurses won't go to that block of flats. That's a team working problem. Yeah. Uh, sometimes in palliative care, you get situations where everybody knows the person needs palliative care. Everyone knows they need pain relief. But you get two or three different people prescribing different painkillers at different times, maybe the mm. Macmillan nurse at one time the GP another time somebody at the hospice another time and then the patient doesn't take any of it because they're not really sure who to believe 
And those Mm. are teamwork uncertainties. So when you think about the uncertainties that you're handling in daily life, they usually map onto one or other of those types of uncertainty. You're right. I I hadn't thought of putting it in kind of a grid like that, but most examples I can think of would fit in one of those sections. They're conjuring all different problems I've had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, let let me work through an example and that might be a a way of thinking about this. So yeah, perfect. A fairly common one. We've got a woman in her 50s. She's got type 2 diabetes. She's obese. Uh, She's got fibromyalgia. She struggles to lose weight. She's already been referred to a weight loss clinic, a pain clinic, and has had some CBT. So I think a lot of clinicians would feel pretty stuck there. Yeah. So the first question to ask ourselves, is this a diagnosis problem or a management problem? What do you think? Management? (laughs) Yeah, it's management, really, because we know she's got diabetes, fibromyalgia, obesity. We know that. So it's about how you're going to cope with this, isn't it? Yeah. And the question is, is this one-to-one or is a group of people involved? That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking, is it in the networking that I'm not knowing where to use my resources properly? Yeah, well, let's go back to the case because she's already been referred to a weight loss clinic, a pain clinic, CBT and an endocrine clinic. So they've, well, they've referred her back to you, haven't they? So there's been a lot of people involved. So maybe it's more negotiating. So this is, exactly, it's a negotiating quadrant one because it's kind of one-to-one really. I mean, there might be a situation further down the line where you might thinking of referral, but you've got four or five failed referrals here. So they're all going to say, thank you very much, doctor, you take over now. So the question is here is what skills are going to help you? Now, certainly negotiating skills will help, but the kind of skills we might be thinking about here are things like shared decision making. So trying to work out what matters to the patient most and working on that, perhaps motivational interviewing skills, Mm. really understanding how to help behavior change, things like solution focused approaches. So does that make sense then about how you go from uncertainty to thinking what skill might I need to use? And you might have to learn a new skill. Yeah, that's true, Um, to be able to fix the problem. But it's nice to think of it in it. I think you're right, being able to say that this does not happen in real time, because I think yeah, it would be impossible to do this in real time. But sitting reflecting on it afterwards, yeah. Yeah, and then when you meet that person and think, well, actually, maybe maybe I need to do some shared decision-making. Maybe I need to be able to say to her, what really matters to you? What's important to you right now? Yeah. And then what are the options that we might have to help that? And then what what does she want to go for herself might change the thing completely because you might be very focused on her fibromyalgia or her obesity. But she might say, what really matters to me at the moment is to be able to take my child to school because I'm in too much pain at the moment. Mm. So then you might think, well, how far away is school? What do you how do you get there? What are the options? Could you start by walking with your child to the end of the street? Could you start by getting them ready for school? You could just have to start thinking about, well, what would the first steps towards that solution be? And then you're into much more of a shared discussion rather than you as the doctor feeling responsible for everything. (laughs) Exactly. And it's with that, you're you're taking a little step with that uncertainty and what you can do because you found a solution that works for her. And if you can get her moving, then it might help her obesity. And then, yeah. Yeah. You can see the knock-on effects. Yeah, and, and it, or it may not. I mean, you, we don't know. But the, the, in the time that you're with her, you will have made a sort of little inch step forward to something that's reasonable for both of you to work on. Yeah. And that changes the dynamic massively. 
so I don't know what's what's the most helpful way forwards here, whether to go through all the quadrants and talk about the skills or maybe just to talk a little bit about sharing uncertainty with patients. I, I think sharing uncertainty with patients would be nice to cover. Okay. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Because um, I think particularly when I'm working with less experienced doctors, they're often very conscious that they don't know everything. And they often say that to patients. Sometimes they say, I'm going to have to ask my trainer or I'm going to have to ask somebody else. But of course, the time comes when your trainer is not there anymore and you still don't necessarily Mm -hmm. know everything. And I think it can be quite hard to say, oh, I just don't know, because the patient in their head is going to say, well, that's okay. I don't expect people to know everything. Perhaps you can find me a doctor who does know. And that kind of leads to the idea that you're going to be referred to somebody who's got Mm -hmm. the magic answer somewhere, which isn't always helpful. So. You can say things like, look, what I'm realising is that there are several different possibilities here. Different things could be going on. I'm wondering if it would be helpful for for me to share my thinking about that with you. Or to say, well, I'm wondering if I can share my thinking. Things don't quite seem to fit together. So you're telling me these things, but the blood tests are telling me these things. So uh, I'm trying to work out how we can fit those things together. And that gives you, puts the uncertainty out there to discuss. Mm -hmm. This phrase on the one hand, on the other hand, is really helpful. So you can say something like, uh, on the one hand, uh, you're worried that you've got thyrotoxicosis because you've looked it up on the web and you're shaky and sweaty and jumpy. On the other hand, what I'm noticing is that you're gaining weight, your pulse is only 72, your blood pressure is normal, your eyes seem completely normal. That doesn't all quite fit together. Let's have a think about how we can resolve that. That's a nice way of putting it. And and it also, patients love to know your thinking. People like to know your thinking about them. So why not tell them what you're thinking and how you're thinking about it? You have got to be thinking. Yeah, I have noticed. The consultations where I have done that um, have been really good. I think you're right. The the patients seem to really appreciate being told, even if if you don't have a clue what's going on, the weighing up of what you're thinking in your head so that they can Mm -hmm. be involved in it. I think it's a little bit like how helpful it is to know the patient's thoughts and concerns and expectations it's helpful for the patient to know your thoughts and concerns and expectations too so you say well I'm, I'm thinking this one of my concerns is that th- this might be something very rare but I'm also concerned that the investigation for that is quite painful and uncomfortable so I- I'm not sure whether yeah. we should be going down that route and my expectation is that this will all get better in the next month and if it doesn't get better maybe we'll do this that and the other so you're sharing your ideas concerns and expectations as well yeah I didn't think of it that way, right? Generalists, you see, have these skills which they can... It's like having tools that you can apply in different situations. They're very powerful. Um, I think the other thing is um, to use uncertainty to your benefit by anticipating it. So an awful lot of times the dysfunctional way out is, I don't really know what's wrong with you. Let's do some tests and see what happens. Go and have some blood tests and then I'll... Um, if I'm lucky, you'll come back when I'm on holiday. If I'm unlucky, I'll see you with the blood tests. And what sometimes happens there, of course, is either the blood tests are all normal, then the patient says, well, what is wrong with me then? Or else they're abnormal in a way that you don't know how to interpret, like there's a high phosphate or something you didn't really be very interested in in the first place or that you think is irrelevant. Mm. So it's much better to anticipate that by saying, well, this is how I'm thinking. This is what I think is likely to happen. I think this is likely to get better. Yeah. I think we could do these tests as a precaution. And if they're normal, which is what I'm hoping for, 
So you signal the likelihood of normality beforehand. Then it would be fine for us to start trying to improve your symptoms straight away by improving your stamina or working on this particular thing or whatever it is you want to do in the meantime. And I think another way of managing uncertainties in the wider sphere when you've got a group team or network or, or involved is to work on building your relationship with the patient. So if, say, you send somebody to A&E because you're not sure about something, say to them, please leave a message for me about how you get on, about what happens, because that I really want to know what, how you get on. You'll get some feedback then. So if you're thinking, well, I think mm. this might be a stroke, and then somebody rings back and says, yes, they were admitted and it was a stroke, you get some learning. Yeah. But if they ring back and say, well, they sent me home the same day and they said it, it was because of this, then you've also got some learning, but also you've built that really solid relationship with the patient that you're interested in what's happened to them. Yeah, I do love that. I'm only really just discovering the messages properly recently. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, that, but just kind of getting that message back to back to you and it's absolutely brilliant. You're so right. Yeah. So what would you like people to take away from this topic today? Okay, well, I think, first of all, I think accept uncertainty as a normal part of clinical practice. It's not a deficiency in you to be uncertain, and it's not an undesirable state to be uncertain. In fact, it often by making you take stock and give pause for thought, it can help you make better decisions about what to do next. Um, just let the panic dribble away and then let your brain come into come into play. And uncertainty is actually necessary in clinical practice to allow us to keep various possibilities in play, to include more than one differential diagnosis, mm. to allow for the fact that things might not go as planned and we need to review and follow people up. So it really incorporating and embracing uncertainty is what I'd say. Secondly, patients don't mind if you talk about uncertainty as long as you do it in the right way. Finally, that there are skills for dealing with different kinds of uncertainty. And if you learn those skills and get better at them, you'll find you start using them automatically and they come into play when you need them. And being able to deal with uncertain situations really is what defines us as professional doctors. If everything was just like a cookbook uh, and you could just know exactly what to do all the time and every patient fitted the guidelines and every patient expressed themselves perfectly clearly and you were never uncertain, you wouldn't have to be a doctor. Uh, and that's what actually makes the job really interesting in the end. And Iona Heath, who's one of the great GPs of our generation, said, only because we do not understand everything and because we can't control the future is it even possible to live. Mm. And I think that's very true. I, I don't want to know everything that's going to happen to me in the future. I'm happy to live with that uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fabulous. I do, I do think, like you said, this is the crux of general practice. And, and then you replied, and life in general. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's yeah. true isn't it it's, it's being comfortable in that and kind of yeah and managing it it's amazing yeah it's a really good topic yeah Thank, thanks so much though um, Avril this has been fascinating um, it's really broken it down in a way that I've not thought of it before um, and I hope it I think it'll help the listeners a lot as well yeah yeah thank you so much I really enjoyed speaking to Avril about this subject today and just the real positive message that came across about uncertainty uh, what did you think Sarah yeah, I did feel like for both of us, there was a bit of a lightning bolt moment. Yeah, especially right at the beginning when she said that being uncertain is not the same as being wrong. Mm -hmm. I think I've had those tied up in knots with each other for a long time. And it was really nice to to separate them out and stand back and think, oh, wait, yeah, they're, they're not the same thing. Yeah, and I definitely recognised 
that whole process of catastrophizing when I don't know the answers to things it's easy to sort of go down that loop and picturing yourself you know when you're in coroner's court and things like that um so it was really interesting taking a completely different approach to it something that we really do have to be comfortable with as part of a completely normal part of the day job yeah yeah exactly um and it was nice to know that there are skills that you can learn yeah. to deal with uncertainty um and it's not a quick fix um but you can manage it if you put the time in um and prioritize it as something that you want to deal with and that was nice to think about yeah absolutely um and um i also really liked her talking about the dysfunctional ways out um i definitely recognize sort of some of the sort of endpoints that you could lead a consultation to can be things that might not be massively helpful or delay delay things and you know and it's it's hard to work out your reasons behind things but it definitely did strike a chord that perhaps sort of putting in some more of the brain power and really trying to tackle the problems um or you know thinking about that uncertainty and and sitting in it for longer uh, might lead to better outcomes yeah yeah completely agree so yeah, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can do in a lot of different ways. Uh, we have a Twitter account and the handle is at PCKB podcast. Uh, we also have an email address, which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. And um, we also have a survey, which we'll put the link in the episode description. And it's anonymous if you want to get in touch that way. Yeah. And it always makes our day when people fill them in. So thank you to those that have. Also, thank you to people who've been sharing um, our podcast on social media or with friends. It's coming back to us and we're getting some really lovely comments. So thank you. Yes, it's really amazing the far reach that the podcast is having. So we do love um, when people are sharing it. Till next time. I'm Primary Care Knowledge Based. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.